You can be turning in your Bible to Psalm chapter 4. This morning we'll be in kind of a psalm of thanksgiving, Psalm 4. Next week the plan will be to be in Psalm chapter 8. So if you're wanting to do some studying between now and then, you can be studying Psalm chapter 8 this week. But for today we'll look at Psalm chapter 4 together. Back on April 25th, it seems like forever ago, Back on April 25th, we looked at Psalm 3, and we're not going to go through all of the history of Psalm 3 again. Um, it, I'd encourage you, if you're not totally familiar, go back and listen to it on the website. You can go back years into the archive of messages that have been preached here and listen to those. Um, let me let me just give a little bit of background to help us remember, though. Okay, It's been said that Psalm 3 and Psalm 4 could be twin psalms uh, or morning and evening psalms. So there, it seems like there's a connection. Now, not everyone believes that, but it seems like there definitely could be a very deep connection between Psalm 3 and Psalm 4, both psalms of David. Here's what's going on in the background of Psalm 3 and Psalm 4 probably. David's family is a mess. Okay, you've got brother abusing sister, brother then killing that brother. Um, then he flees from David, afraid for his own life. He comes back, and this is Absalom in particular. Absalom comes back after a few years, uh, but doesn't see David for another few years. Then when he finally does get in David's good graces again, he begins to undermine David's authority in the kingdom. Um, He even sways the allegiance of David's closest friend, Ahithophel. And in 2 Samuel chapter 15, it kind of records all of this. And it says, in particular, it says that Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel away from David. He stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And in reality, he then created a coup to overthrow his, his father. And so... Where it kind of drops us in the story is David is now, right, Absalom at one point fleed from David afraid for his life. Now it's reversed. David is fleeing from Absalom afraid for his life. And as Jason, thank you, mentioned to the kids, he probably found himself in a cave a lot of nights, sleeping, hiding, that sort of thing. His son, Absalom, wanted to kill him. That's how you assumed the throne in a monarchy. Right, The one before you dies, whether you take him out or he dies of natural causes, that's how the son would take his throne. And so that's what happened, or that's what, was, that's what Absalom was trying to make happen. So he's, his son's trying to kill him. The hearts of the people of Israel have been swayed away from him. One of his best friends turned on him, and now he's sleeping in a damp cave with a rock for a pillow. The life of a king, right? Ah, So glamorous and wonderful. Now let's read Psalm 4. That's what's going on, I think, when he wrote these eight verses. Verse 1. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You've been given, you have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words, seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry 
and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts, on your own beds, and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You've put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Father, give us grace this morning to not just understand and heed your words, Lord, but to live them, uh, to live them in a way of conviction. Uh, and as was commented so many times at our friend Paul, uh, Todd's funeral yesterday, just that we would be men of honor, men and women of honor who do what we say, who stand firmly on our convictions uh, that are based out of the word of God. And so may we learn of you better today. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. So I hope hope pretty quick you can see why the context of knowing David's kind of the background of what's going on, why it's important here. He says right there in the first verse, he says his life, he's in distress. Are, Are any of you feeling in distress today? You don't have to raise your hand, but I imagine that some of some of us are. Whether that's just the pressures of life or tension in marriage or financially or whatever the case might be, any number of us could raise our hands and say, I feel like that. I'm, I feel in distress today. Well, David's life was in danger. His family was kind of their future was hanging in the balance here with everything going on. And this chapter reveals that his reputation, his name was on the line too. His character was being attacked. I think verse 1 sums up and captures that feeling pretty well. David is going from fleeing from his life one day to mourning the death of his son the next. Lots of things are going on in his life, but it's interesting and noteworthy how he responds to all of this, what's going on. How, how does he uh, take it in and then live in light of it? And I hope by understanding his response, it kind of causes us to reflect on how we respond in similar difficult situations. And this brings us to our first point on the notes. And it's this, and this is no surprise to you, I don't think, but it's awfully easy to run from God in our trials than towards God. It's easy to demand what we think is justice from God and almost like we try Him in our own court. He's on the, he's on the stand now and we're trying him. So tempting in the moments of our difficulties to say or to think, Lord, you know, I thought, I thought we were good. I thought you loved me. I I try to obey the best that I can. I try to follow you to do good things. I feel like I'm one of the good guys. Lord, why is this happening to me? Why are you doing this? Why are you treating me this way? Why are you allowing this? Whatever the thoughts may be, it's, these are not uncommon to us. But we tend to demand this justice from God because we feel like maybe he's in the wrong, like he's unwise or he's uncaring or unfaithful or any number of ways that we can think that would cause us to walk away from him instead of towards him. Well, what does David do? I think, I hope it's obvious here. He runs to God. He puts his trust in God Again, he basically says, look, you've answered me in the past. You have delivered me. 
You've given me relief before. And so I believe that you hear me and that you're going to be gracious to me again. That's how he responds. He runs to God. But then at the same time, I think verse 2 helps us understand that his heart goes out to the people of Israel who were currently running away from God. Look at verse 2 with me. Oh, men, I think that's who he's got in mind here. He says, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? Boy, some of that really applies today, I think. The hearts of the men of Israel had been deceived, specifically by Absalom. And David knew that running to the Lord was not just his only hope, it's their only hope as well. Friends, for the world that has been deceived, running to the Lord is their only hope. Is that what we desire? Or are we content to simply watch them fall deeper and deeper into sin? Verse 2, I think, reveals a bit of a difference between Psalm 3 and Psalm 4. In Psalm 3, David's physical person was being attacked. He was physically driven away because of Absalom and the people's insurrection. They were rising up against him. You can kind of glance through that. The first verse of chapter 3, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising up against me. But then in Psalm 4, David's reputation and character are being attacked more. In fact, the honor, maybe of all the godly, seems to be in doubt in David's mind. And this brings the question to our minds, is integrity worth the trouble that it brings? Because it brings trouble. Standing for truth brings difficulties. Is it worth it? Is it worth being misunderstood? Is it worth being misrepresented or is it worth being ridiculed for? Because, friends, more and more is that going to happen for people that cling to the Word of God and seek to live it out daily. Seems like maybe this sort of thing was happening to David in this particular time. People loved vain words, he says. They loved lies more than honor, more than truth. And David is saying, why do you do this? He knew that the people who did this, who felt this way, who thought these things, were running, in essence, away from their only hope. He knew, he recognized that's his only hope, but he also recognized it for the people around him, for those who he cared for. Verse 3 continues this. It says, The Lord has set apart the godly for himself. Now, the ESV Study Bible, if you've got one of those, it includes this note that I thought was helpful. It says, God set his special attention and affection on a person or people in order to distinguish them. What set apart means for a purpose. What was the purpose? Well, Christians, God's people, were set apart for him, for himself. He set us apart for himself. He sanctified us. He has chosen believers for himself. And the Lord hears when his set apart ones call out to him you can believe it david believed it he is sure of it because he's experienced it personally already in the past so verse one it's it seems as though david is talking to god and verse two and three he's talking to men and then in verse four and five i think he's kind of starting to talk to himself a little bit here he says be angry and do not sin Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. 
So David runs to God instead of away from him. And he challenges others to do the same. And now he begins to turn that light of truth inward. To expose his own heart. He's talking to his own heart in this and examining it. And he exposes, I think, two major tendencies of people when we're in a difficult situation or specifically when our character may be being attacked. And I think he also gives a solution. So here's the two things. When we're actively in a trial, it is not only easy to to turn away and run away from God instead of towards him, but it's also easy to get mad and to complain. These are the things that he addresses in verse 4. Anger and then being silent, not complaining. If you remember some of our other psalms that we talked about looking at the nation of Israel and Moses and what were they guilty of that received pretty severe judgment, complaining. These are the two tendencies that David mentions. And I think he's telling himself, hey, Look out for these things. He's reminding himself, don't be angry. Don't sin in your anger. Now, anger is shown in all kinds of ways. I don't need to explain to you or give you examples of how anger is shown, but you you understand this because you get angry too, I would think. I do, but I don't always get angry in the same ways. It doesn't always come out. Sometimes it comes out as like physical outbursts and people yell or people punch things or throw things. Physical violence. Um, sometimes anger is given by just ignoring someone, giving them the silent treatment. Sometimes it's just sulking around pitifully, being indifferent to those around you, waiting for someone to ask you what's wrong, you know, that kind of thing. Anger is expressed in all kinds of different ways. Uh, Paul Tripp, I was reading this week, he said, That if we as Christians, we say we believe that God is sovereign, then when we're angry with our circumstances, what we're really saying is that we're angry with God. Think about that. If God is sovereign over all and we're angry at what he has brought about in our life, who are we then really angry with? Remember, David is dealing with being slandered. So in a sense, we might say that he had a right to be angry, as many of us would. But what does he say? Be angry and do not sin. And maybe we could say this another way. If you feel anger at those who slander you, don't sin by seeking revenge against them. Though it's possible to be angry and not to sin, very rarely are we angrier about God's reputation than ours. The second half of verse 4 reveals this other tendency that I mentioned in times of trial. And it's not just being angry, it's complaining about what's going on. But it also tells us how to prevent sinning in anger and to prevent complaining. And I think we could just say it's this. David says, hey, take a breath, sleep on it, and be quiet. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent, he says. So hard to be silent when we're angry, isn't it? Or for some of us who that's not maybe hard for, it's so hard to be silent when we're offended, when our rights have been violated or taken away. It's really easy and appealing to the flesh to call up our best friend and vent for a little bit. Or maybe to post on social media 
what's going on and why you're justified in your anger. Not that any of us would do that. But that's not being obedient to Scripture, is it? Absolutely not. And listen, um, there, there are legitimate times when it's appropriate to speak up about things. In cases of abuse, the proper people need to be told so that appropriate action can be taken. That's not just flippant complaining either in those cases. In rare situations when someone's character is attacked in a very public forum, I think maybe the truth needs to be made just as public But make no mistake, David's way that he's giving us in trial, his way to prevent sin is sound. It's good. Now this isn't saying that Christians are just doormats or perpetual whipping boys for whoever wants to take it out on them. There may be legitimate times when godly people will use lawful recourse according to Scripture. But this is saying that personal revenge after being wronged is sinful. Revenge in that sense is absolutely sinful. It's sinful because it circumvents the law that God has established and it takes matters into our own hands. Something that God's people have been told repeatedly over and over not to do, and I, I don't know if I've got these in your notes, but you can jot these down and look at them later. First Peter three nine, Proverbs twenty four twenty nine, First Thessalonians five fifteen, Romans twelve seventeen, Proverbs seventeen thirteen, Proverbs twenty verse twenty two. All of these say almost identically the same thing. Do not repay evil for evil. Do not take revenge. Revenge belongs to who? To God. You, my friend, are not God. And I'm not either. Proverbs twenty twenty two says, Do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord, and He will deliver you. So take a step back. Maybe you're in a stressful trial at the moment. Take a step back. Reflect on the situation, on what's happened, and then think, as David did, about how the Lord has shown himself to be trustworthy and leave it up to him to avenge you. This is always easier said than done, but this is what David did. Now, here's another practical, real practical note here before we move on, and it's this. What can't you do when you're talking. Yeah, you, you can't listen very well when you're talking. And you've seen this play out in all kinds of forums, in your home and in other places. When there's an argument or there's tension and two people are talking, that means zero people are listening. And then we have problems, big problems. So if you're constantly talking about the problem and complaining about the problem to anyone who will listen, guess what you're not doing? You're not listening to God for a solution to your problems. You can't hear what God is saying in those moments if you aren't quiet. So, let me be clear. There are times when we ought to bring our concerns and our prayers and supplications before the Lord. That is absolutely true. David actually starts this psalm that way. But there are plenty of moments when we just need to stop talking and listen. And somebody said this years ago, but I think that's why God gave you two ears and only one mouth. 
so that you listen twice as much as you speak. Verse 5 shows another aspect of David's solution to being angry and complaining. He says, offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. Offer right sacrifices. You know we, what word we condense that down to now? Uh, we talked about it in Jason Sunday School class this morning. Worship. So what, look at what David is, is saying here. He's saying, in the midst of your difficult situation, in the midst of your trial, be quiet and worship. It's hard enough to examine your own heart when you've been hurt. It's hard enough to be quiet and not complain. But now David tells us something that seems to be almost impossible when we're in a difficult trial. Worship. So here's a question that I have for you. When you've been hurt or dissatisfied with your life or you're walking through a great time of difficulty, is worship the first thing on your mind? If you've, if you've been hurt by a spouse, is running to them and getting a big hug the first thing on your mind? Usually it's not. In fact, if you're hurt and you are in the middle of a trial, you might look around at everybody singing songs with conviction and from their heart, and you might just be angry about it. You may think, if they knew what I was going through, they wouldn't want to sing either. They'd be upset just like I am. Why would I worship when my life is going the way that it is? All kinds of hard thoughts about God can go through our minds in difficult situations. David had them too. And as surprising as it might be to us, his reminder to us and to himself was this. Examine your heart. Choose to worship. And then at the end of verse 5, he says, determine to put your trust again in the Lord. I don't think this is a like fake it till you make it kind of worship situation either. So here's a question that is good for reflection and to kind of get to the root and heart of this that we need to ask ourselves. Do I trust the Lord when things are going poorly in my life as much as I do when they're going well? If we're honest with ourselves as Christians, I think most of the time our faith is strengthened more in times of difficulty, and in times of ease. Now that's not what we ask for, is it? It's in the midst of those trials, we never say this is good, although we're instructed to do so in the book of James. It's so difficult to do that. But then when we're through them and God has been faithful, we look back and say, man, that was some of the most productive growth in my walk with Christ I've ever had. Here's another question to consider. Am I worshiping God because he's given me things that I think make me happy? Or am I worshiping God simply because he's God? Why are we worshiping? If we refuse to worship in the midst of a trial, we need to evaluate why we worship when things are good. David moves into verse 6 and says, There are many who say, who will show us some good? There are many believers who would even say, how would this situation ever turn out good? And I've been there. And you've maybe been there. 
Someone passes away or some tra- tragic event happens or whatever the case might be and you think, Lord, how I don't understand this. There's no conceivable way in my mind that I see this turning out for good. And we say, who will show us some good from this? Just like these people David is referring to. And this reveals a question that kind of is at the core of what I want to uh, continue with this morning. It's this idea of what do we really need in our times of difficulty? In your trial, what do you really need? Because we would say, and we tend to think, well, if we just had the answer, if God would tell me why this is happening, that would be all that I need. Then I could make it through and I'd be fine. If I could just understand why, then I'd be good. And some of you are shaking your heads because you know that wouldn't be enough. It wouldn't be enough. It's possible to receive answers to our questions and still not be satisfied, right? Because we don't have the mind of God. I think what we really need is a thing that verse 6 goes on to specify the light of the face of God to shine upon us. In our trials, it's so common for the trial to become the biggest thing in our life, the biggest thing in front of our face, like a mountain that's moved in front of us. And from the moment you open your eyes in the morning to the moment you close close them at night, that's what dominates your thoughts. That's what dominates your vision. It blocks out everything else. And our situation, whatever it is, it turns into the biggest thing. It looks like the biggest, most important thing in our lives. But the thing that we need the most of all gets blocked out behind it. And it's the light of the face of God. I pray that God would reorient our view to see Him as what's really needed. To see Him as what's really important. Not, not the mountain of the difficulty, but the presence of God himself. If you look at Psalm 80, which you can do another time, but in Psalm 80, Asaph is the author here and he pleads with God three different times. Specifically, he says this exact phrase. He said, let your face shine that we might be saved. This Asaph and David agree. This is what we really need. When our character is being attacked, when we feel like we're running for our lives and we don't know which way is up, We don't need the answers to all of our questions. We need the light of the face of God to save us. Another commentator has said, lasting, abiding, sturdy peace, it's not found in understanding all of the questions, or the answers to the questions. Lasting, sturdy, abiding peace is found in a person and his name is Jesus. This side of eternity we won't understand. But we will always have the presence of the Lord because he will not leave you. He will not forsake you. More than understanding all the answers, what we really need in trials is to experience the presence of God himself. When the enormity of our trials begins to be tempered by our view of God and things begin to reorient more biblically, something special happens that David talks about in verse 7 now. Read that with me. He says, you've put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. So does this mean that David's enemies weren't hunting him anymore? That hadn't changed. 
Does this mean that he could just walk back into Jerusalem like everything was perfectly fine and right in his kingdom? No. Does this mean that his family was just put back together and everybody loved each other the way that they were supposed to? No. Does this mean that your trials are just gone in a moment and that your life is perfect and nothing bothers you anymore? No. But exercising a proper response to the difficult situations that God has brought us into can absolutely put more joy in your heart than the joy that those who don't have Christ think they get from earthly things. David says that it's better than the joy the ungodly have when their grain and wine abound. When they've got all they think they need to be happy, David's joy in the cave with the rock pillow is better than theirs. That's that's hard for us to get our heads around, isn't it? Because our joy is not often graded the same way that David's is here. The presence of the Lord and His Word are better than anything else for David. And I think back to Psalm 119 that we went through a few weeks ago and echoes a lot of these same things. Verse 72 of that chapter, he says, "Better that the, the Word of God is better than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Thousands of gold and silver pieces. Verse 103, it's sweeter than honey to his mouth. Verse 111, he says that the word of the Lord is his heritage forever. And listen to this, the joy of his heart. Can you say this morning that the Lord and his word are the joy of your heart? Psalm 119 verse 135 says something else that's familiar. It says, make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. So we see that idea of God's presence, the idea of his, the light of his face shining. And David says there, he says, teach me your statutes. That's what we really need, isn't it? We need to experience the presence of the Lord personally. We need his face to shine upon us. We need his word to be with us all the time. And it's then that we can lie down in peace and sleep. That's what verse 8 lists. It's, it lists peace and sleep, and then at the end it lists safety as the results of knowing and experiencing God that way. Even when he was on the run from people who wanted him dead, even in a dark and damp cave with a rock for a pillow, even in the midst of personal Great personal tragedy, the loss of his son. David says he can lie down and sleep in peace because it's the Lord who makes him dwell in safety. It's God. It's not the situation. It's not David's control of the situation or lack thereof. It's the Lord who makes him safe. He says, you alone, O Lord. So you've got a mountain of distress right in front of you. And it's hard to see anything else. Peace should have been the furthest thing from David in this time. Restful sleep should have been a ridiculous notion for a guy who was on the run, fleeing for his life like this. All of these things, the great mountain of pain and the the difficulties, the desire to be angry, the desire to complain, all of these things were bombarding David in the moment, and yet he was able to lie down and sleep peacefully because he trusted the Lord would make him dwell in safety. Is that your dwelling place of safety? 
Maybe you're hearing all of this and maybe you're reading Psalm 4 and you're thinking, wow, hey, good for David that he could feel this way and do these things, but there's no way I can do that in my life. There's no way that I could respond to trials this way. In fact, this actually seems really unrealistic. Well, here's the truth. Psalm 4 isn't the proof of a perfect person. An unrealistically perfect person. That's not what Psalm 4 is getting at. Psalm 4 is the story of what God can do to the, to, in the heart of everyone who puts their trust in Him. This is the story of someone who puts their trust in God, even as an imperfect person. So this is David's Psalm, but it's not just for David, is it? This was recorded for you. And if you're going through a trial today as David was in his day, this psalm is for you. It's for me. The same God will meet you in his grace, in your time of need, in your moment of trouble, just like he did David. So Psalm 4 shows us the way. It says, examine your heart, choose to worship, and determine to put your trust yet again in a faithful God. And we can do this like David. We can do this confidently, not in ourselves, not in how we're going to respond perfectly to some of these things, but we can do this confidently because it's the Lord and the Lord alone who makes us to dwell in safety. So if you feel under the weight of burden today for a trial, I'd encourage you as we sing this and reflect, um, as we take the Lord's Supper and then sing a song, Put your hope again in Christ. As we reflect on the broken body and shed blood of Jesus, run to Him, not away from Him. You may be looking at your situation and thinking, there's no way I could respond like David did. There's no chance. What did David do? He just put his trust again in the Lord. Just as As easily as you sat down in that chair when you came in today, you sit down and rest in Christ. This supper is open to every person who has believed. If you've put your faith in Christ, He is your Lord. Uh, You are welcome to participate in this. We would love for you to do that. We'll have a word of prayer, and then uh, our, our deacons and elders will begin to pass it out. You can take one of the cups And just hold it, and then when we all have been served, we'll have some reflection on it. So let's let's pray together. Oh Lord, we now turn our attention to one of the ordinances that you have instructed the church to continue on in. There hasn't been a lot of them, but this is one. And so, Lord, we take it seriously, and we we don't separate it from the rest of our lives. This isn't just something that that we do in the 10 minutes after a service every once in a while, Lord. This is part of being a Christian and walking with you. It's reflecting on and remembering Christ and his death. Thinking deeply on the sacrifice that was given, the debt that was paid. But also the hopeful realization that you are no longer dead. This body was broken, yes, and that, that brought atonement to all who believe, but Lord... We have the expectation, the the anchor for our souls, that you are alive. And so, Lord, as, as we take this as a body, as your people, remind us of Psalm 4. The distress that we are in, you are able to bring us through.
because you love us and you will never leave us or forsake us. In Christ's name we thank you. Amen.